Hello, welcome to We Don't Talk About the Weather, political discussion from the outside may look like screaming and crying. I'm Adam, this is Hugh. Hello. And we're here to talk news and politics. Yeah. All right, everyone. We are back after a week absolutely Well, we missed last week because we were on uh, uh, Sinan's uh, Twitch stream. Yeah. Playing for the people and uh, deciding the fates of millions. Yep. Um, with prejudice only really on whether they look like sex offenders or not. Oh, yeah. And there was a lot of, what's it, the Kentish people that, that <laughs> you know, that, that can't resist being persecuted in the Kent. Just can't. You just can't help it, really. But, yeah, so, you know, there's been a whole two weeks of precious news funneled directly into our brains. Um, well, me while I sleep, having LBC on while I sleep. I need to stop that. I really do. It's it's no good for you. It doesn't give you a good. So it doesn't. It doesn't give you a good like. It associates politics and paying attention to detail with pain, <laughs> <laughs> which right now I know is very widespread. But, <laughs> but it's oh, it's um, it. The worst is the is the weekends. Um, being woken up with either Andrew Pierce talking about um, like what well, was one of the ones that made me wake up, literally rolling out of the bed shouting, was him saying that you know Pretty Patel, I've I've known her for years, she's not a bully. Um, oh yeah, oh the bullying thing, yeah, yeah. Um, he's a particularly uh, obnoxious one. It's the fact that he always says that you know, like, well, I'm, I, you know, I wouldn't say I'm a, cons- a member. I'm not a Conservative Party. I do support them, but I'm not a member of the Conservative Party. And it's like your Twitter account is Tory Boy Pierce. <laughs> I vote for them, but <laughs> I vote for them. Uh, I write articles I defending them, them every, every week, <laughs> and I have a high profile ish media job where I just talk about how everything they do and believe is right. <laughs> how day that's kind of gone though, hasn't it? I mean, it's kind of transmorphed now. The the I'm a Tory, so I don't get a voice, and everyone's mean to me. It's still there, but it's sort of it's sort of spread now. It's I'm a transphobe, and I lost my uh, I assume high paying Guardian gig. Therefore, I have to go to jail slash a lesser <laughs> publication, and vo- and you know I've been silenced. Uh, the the I've been silenced because of my transphobic beliefs is a very tiring. If you were really under pressure, mm-hmm. wouldn't being silenced be a kinder thing than uh, being bullied? Hmm. It would, kind of would, wouldn't it? If you were yeah. actually under any kind of sustained threat, yeah. uh, you just you just like not being able to write in the Guardian anymore, or write in wherever. That would be a lesser thing than just constantly being harassed, right? Yeah, she wasn't even sacked, was she? She chose to leave. Was Suzanne Moore? I don't. I don't know that. I don't care for the details. I did read I really her article. I, I, I do want to no. save it. I do want to kind of save it for another time because it's. Uh, well, no, I think. I, I so I, I I think we we had a, a something of like a moral stand. Yeah, we were like remainers in 2019. <laughs> we had something of a moral stand. Um, sorry, I meant Remainers when confronted with Corbynism as opposed to <laughs> Remainers confronted with Conservatism. We had a moral stand. And we were like, look, everyone just does articles every week. We're going to try and leave that, leave off that, even though it's a rich, rich mine of content. We're going to ease off of it. But I think every now and again, you should have a little column as a treat. I like the way you say, say it like, like <laughs> that, when in reality it was... Adam, I can't do this anymore. I'm going to kill myself <laughs> if I have to read their horrible fucking 
word diary or ever again. Look, it was it but, was planned. We weren't allow. Uh, we weren't relying on the kind of supply and demand of our emotions getting in the way. But yeah, maybe next week we'll do a. We'll have a a, a ceasefire, an autonomous zone, a, like a, a truce during World War One to play football, and we'll do like some of the sweetest, hottest takes that we've seen in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah. Uh, or maybe I'll just. Oh God, who was it? It was um, I can't even remember which which magazine it was. It was the the article about um how Wales hasn't ever been a nation, therefore you know that how can they be independent. That one. Like, oh, guaranteed. That's that's on a, I'd say, biannual cycle at the moment. There's, yeah. there's probably one of those pops up every six months or so. Oh, they're going to be coming up. They're going to be coming up more and more as like groups like Yes Camry do better. <laughs> I presume so. Let's see. Um, I'm going to go with a professor, not necessarily of humanities, but probably of English literature. Uh, write something about how the Welsh language should die. <laughs> that's that's. Constant. I'm going to go with that. And that will that will. I mean, I'm sure that there was that novelist guy who did it, but I'm, I reckon we're in the mode now, where it's probably most of these outrage things are going to be generated from universities as they refill with um, conservative, as they become homes of balance again yeah. and refill with pissed off Tories. Yeah. Um, the, the the outrage machine, will, I reckon, will probably come from from professorships. Yeah. A, li- a little more often than it has, but. Um, yeah, that's on a that's on a good it's on a good cycle. It's a it's good for for a low time when there's no outrage and there's no content. You know, you've got to keep feeding that machine. Yeah, and what else happened? Oh yeah, there's a constant unending Keir Starmer being really bad at being a Stalinist, but still really going for it. You know, with the <laughs> suspending CLPs, um, sending ang- um, I don't know if it was it, I don't think it was sent by him, but that angry letter to the young Labour woman. Um, telling them that telling her that she was bringing the part, which is like um using the party logos for factional disputes because of a figured support of Jeremy Corbyn. I have no idea um if like Starmer himself is like has this kind of strategy. I like I have no idea one way or the other. What I do know is that exactly the people mentioned in that leak leaked Labour report who yeah. were you know calling people pubehead and yeah uh, laughing about uh, mentally ill people. Yep. And wishing, um, wishing they'd kill themselves. And wishing they'd kill themselves. Um, they are very, very, very angry. They or people like them who are running the Labour Party now, running the central office, are really going into overdrive and lashing out with a kind of a lack of focus. <clears throat> yeah. Because, like, I'll be perfectly honest, if you wanted to drive the left-wingers out of Labour, it, it probably wouldn't be that hard, uh, you know? But there's a kind of lack of focus and, and a kind of going going mad with the disciplinary processes and not really getting your reasons as to why in order so they can't really focus on any one thing. So, yeah, it's just like a CLP here, a Young Labour movement there. Yeah, you know? it's, it's, it, is, it does seem like they're doing things and then constantly trying to justify the thing that they did in like a lashing out way and seeing as mm. these are all the people who are supposed to be really good at the the functioning of a, pol- a political party i know it's a bit you know it's, it's oh like, they are showing their asses completely yeah they've always we've been said this we have we have said this well, we have, well, i don't think they've always been shitted at if they're even the same people but if you're imagining yeah. a model a model labor 
it's not a civil servant, but like a model Labour like functionary who mm. works in that party, who works in a comms department or you yeah. know, in public relations on the on the off seasons. Like they are absolutely they have they have completely lost it like as to where this is all going. Yeah. Like I, I like you have no, no one has any idea what Keir Starmer's Labour Party is actually actually for. It's just a series of like rolling over and um testing things out, but not even in the way that you can actually see the government doing it. Why didn't wouldn't they leak stuff and then see how people react? Mm. You know, like there's no tact, there's no um strategy to there's no tactics to any of it. Mm. It's just like fire it out and oh my god, we're in a panic because if we don't do this, we'll be seen as unpatriotic or we'll be seen as losing control or yeah. anti Semitic or something like that. And it's like no one really knows, no one cares. They're not listening to you anymore. Mm. You know? That that you have you have lost whatever it is you thought were your principles was actually just a fudge in the beginning. So you've you've lost any you've lost any centre to it. Yeah. Yeah. Um yeah, it's gonna be it was what's the next election's May, isn't it? Uh yes, I yeah, think so. I mean the London when's the mayoral election? That May, is it's May, same isn't time, it? yeah. So mm. locals uh, mayoral and like Scottish and Welsh, I think as well then. Mm. Um, so be, you know, that's the next time we'll properly see because you know there's polls all the time but mm. <clears throat> um, I'm looking forward to the moment where we're told that you know it's still because of the stink of Jeremy Corbyn that you know they were booing him so much that they were booing they were still booing him when I came on stage um, yep. you know that kind of shit um, so yeah ugh, Labour Party ugh <laughs> just, just tiring but, but you know, Hugh you promised <laughs> yeah, we were going to have a permanent autonomous zone <laughs> away from the Labour Party. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, no, no, fuck. Yeah, um, but yeah. I'd be honest. They don't. They, they're not. They're not particularly living in my head. I, I don't. I don't regard them. I think we've had a, a fairly, fairly pain-free separation. My head and <laughs> Labour. Not that they were ever really entwined that much, but yeah, we weren't in there for long. No, um, I was not in there at all when. Um, I didn't actually join until I mean I joined after the election. Yeah, you did. <laughs> I literally just joined to because I I really don't know why, but I well, I, I just joined for the chance. NEC. I joined oh I joined, joined for the NEC because I figured that whatever came after Corbyn would be probably more significant and more important than what happened while he was in there. Yeah, to be honest, like that would probably define that era, and we've got a definition for that era now, and that is. Massive blip on the road to decline. Yep, but you know, at least we can go see our parents at Christmas. Are you going to see your parents at Christmas? I'm not seeing my parents at Christmas. Cause no, like no. My, my <laughs> like my mum and stepfather. Like my stepfather is like just had heart surgery, so I'm not going <laughs> to risk any of that. Yeah, my my dad was shielding the first the first lockdown. I think he's not shielding that much now. Mm. Um. But I I might try and go and see my parents. But it's the the focus on Christmas as opposed to all else. I mean, you've you've talked about it before, like the addiction of the Tory government about giving good news to old people. Yeah, yeah. It's like staggering it how is. how on point that is. Yeah, it's like, ridiculous. Um, like whatever whatever like advertising sentimentalist axis. That their psychology is working on yeah. is 
purely geared and it, it was working like that towards uh, like for brexit as well i mean presumably the greatest tragedy of covid is that we aren't going to get the full like uh january 1st celebration of full independence day with the whole big ben thing and yeah. because like s- seeing what they prioritized during that kind of celebration would mm-hmm. have been i think would have kept like political psychologists going for for decades yeah yeah um but we're not going to get that now. Um, well, no, the, it's the just going to happen or, or the not. The thing that would have been funny, they would have done a big thing and it would have been virtually identical to the 2012 opening ceremony. And you would have had loads <laughs> yeah. of liberals saying that actually, though, it was very different. <laughs> no, we shall buy no more nuclear weapons. But, Prime Minister, you're not a secret unilateralist. You know, we still have Polaris. Polaris is a ramshackle old system. The Soviets might easily develop a multi-layered ballistic missile defense system which could intercept Polaris. By when? Well, in strategic terms, any day now. By what year? Precisely. 2020? Present day. (laughs) Present time. So for our main topic this week, um, I've been looking into uh, nuclear weapons. Yeah, um, in celebration British... of Luke Akehurst getting on the NEC. <laughs> yeah, yeah, in celebration of Luke Akehurst, I've been looking at... Because like, nuclear weapons aren't really one of those things that we talk about a lot, even though you know it's actually kind of bizarre to talk about Britain as having nuclear weapons, especially mm. considering like it's one of only like 13 countries yeah. that has ever had nuclear weapons obviously if you don't count um south africa who who gave up theirs um and yeah it's i thought it'd be quite interesting to actually just have a brief like go through the the history of nuclear weapons on the british isles so since the 14th of june 1969 when Mm -hmm. polaris missiles were mounted on royal navy submarines at least one of four british nuclear armed boats has been circling the oceans every minute of every day Each submarine carries eight missiles and 40 independently targetable warheads. These could inflict 266 times the power of the Hiroshima bomb. For the government's part, the first thing on the .gov page on the independent nuclear deterrent uh, is this, these three points. Quote, our retention of an independent centre of nuclear decision-making makes clear to any adversary that the costs of of an attack on UK vital interests will outweigh any benefits. The decision-making and use of the system remains entirely sovereign to the UK. Only the Prime Minister can authorise the launch of nuclear weapons, which ensures that political control is maintained at all times. Our procurement relationship with the US regarding the Trident missile does not compromise the operational independence of our nuclear deterrent. All I'd like to say is, my fully independent nuclear deterrent website is making people ask a lot of questions (laughs) answered by my website. (laughs) the nuclear we are really only kind of come across nuclear weapons most commonly is when uh, you have a new prime minister the nuclear induction of new prime ministers is really weird basically a new pm is asked to write four letters one for each trident sub to be opened in the event of the uk being destroyed and they're allowed to write in these letters one of four actions to be taken by the captains in that event one to retaliate two to do nothing Three, to place the submarine under the control of an ally, specifically the US Navy or the Royal Australian Navy. Or four, to act... (laughs) Like, oh, poor Canada. Like, if you think of, like, our our former empire babies, it's like like Canada, always ignored. Canada, poor Canada, the Prince Edward. 
Was of... it part of the? Di- <laughs> was it? Yes, the Prince Edward of White Dominions. Yes. <laughs> um, and four to act how the captain deems best. Oh God. Uh, yeah, the decision taken is never revealed. And Cameron's, for instance, were burned yeah. after Theresa May became prime minister. The only prime minister who ever revealed what they wrote was Jim Callaghan. Mm-hmm. Quote, if we had got to the point where it was, I felt necessary to do it, then I would have done it. He told a BBC documentary in 1988. I've had terrible doubts, of course, about this. And I say to you that if I had lived after having pressed that button, I would never, ever have forgiven myself. Thanks, Jim. Yeah. <laughs> good to know. Good to know you'd feel bad about yeah. ending the world, but... Yeah, nice. Oh yeah, one of the things that I was um that struck me was this thing the the Moscow um was it the Moscow principle? You got that? Uh I don't remember that one. It was a, it was like the Moscow direct okay, the Moscow directive, which was despite that you needed to have the a, we- a nuclear weapon for it to be good, had to be able to despite all of the defenses of Russia to at least be able to wipe out Moscow. <laughs> <laughs> and that's literally like one of the tick boxes on is this a good nuclear weapon? Yeah, that's 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 been the uh, thing. It's like, can we do one thing really, really well? Yeah, it's, hard, it's like <laughs> which just, is yeah. it was just horrifying. Just watch it was like uh, watching a finger. I think it was on Newsnight of this guy just explaining, you know, the 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 the, <laughs> the nitty gritty of what makes a good world ending weapon. <laughs> yeah, Carol. I mean, yeah, I mean, Britain has like a long history of involvement in that, that kind mm. of thing as like a, a, you know, it's got a lot of physicists, a lot of chemists, um, but also a lot of sci-fi authors. Um, yeah. The first the first notions of applying um, nuclear physics to weaponry came um, in as early as 1913. H.G. Wells, in his novel, The World Set Free, imagined the battlefields and bomb fields of that frantic time in human history sprinkled with radiant matter and so centres of inc- inconvenient rays. The British establishment took the possibilities of nuclear fission quite seriously, um, with concerns being raised as early as 1939 as to where Britain would source supplies of uranium for potential weapons. Um, In this area, they kind of settled on the the Belgian Congo's uranium mines, which is where I think eventually the uranium for the Manhattan Project came from. Uh Um, The Maud Committee was convened in 1940 to investigate the possibility of using uranium in the war effort for the Second World War. The reports produced concluded that a bomb using nuclear fissile, fissile, nuclear fissile material was possible and included some early technical specifications and likely cost. In response, the British government launched nuclear weapons development under the secret name of the Tube Alloys Consultative Council. <laughs> and that became like a, a code name for any kind of nuclear stuff. It was Tube Alloys. Okay. Um, Churchill was quite keen to have atomic research be a joint Anglosphere effort. Um, and he, it, to this end, signed the, the formal Quebec Agreement with the US and Canada in 1943. This agreement stated that the UK and the US would never use the bomb against each other, that they would not use it against a third party without the other's consent, that the project would remain secret from other countries except by mutual consent, and that any post-war industrial benefits should be shared between the US and the UK at the US's discretion. Mm-hmm. This effort, uh, the Maud Committee and the Tube Allies Consultative Council, was eventually subsumed into the Manhattan Project, with Britain really having neither the expertise nor the money. Um, The Manhattan Project cost the US nearly $23 billion in modern monies. Um, But the Britain had neither the expertise nor the money to put into nuclear research during wartime. Once... Uh, While a number of British scientists were instrumental in building the first bomb and the British government was consulted on the decision to drop the Hiroshima bomb, uh, 
um, it, with one of the British delegation, uh, William Penny, even being present in one of the observation planes over Nagasaki, um, Britain exited the war firmly as a junior partner in the development of nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. Um, the Hiroshima bomb was actually dropped only a few days after Clement Attlee had become prime minister. Um, the question of whether Britain would develop a nuclear bomb was never really in doubt. Any hopes that the Attlee cabinet would diverge from the British state's military and imperial stance were quickly dispelled. But getting two nuclear status would prove very difficult. Its cost, estimated to be around £150 million, was astronomical at a time when Britain was virtually bankrupt and dependent on rationing and lend-lease food imports. What's more, the US had withdrawn from their wartime commitments under the Quebec Agreement to share knowledge and were blocking any further research results from being shared outside the US. Despite the close relationship during the war, by 1946, in response to a series of revelations of Canadian and British scientists passing atomic research to the Soviet Union, uh, the US passed the Atomic Energy Act, classifying all atomic secrets as classified at birth, i.e. any nuclear research would always be considered top secret due to its nature, not due to its specific content. Mm -hmm. If it's in nuclear, if it's a nuclear secret, it's always classified. Yeah. Churchill had hoped that nuclear cooperation would remain a joint affair between the UK and the US, but the mood in the US trended towards preserving their atomic advantage for as long as possible. Attlee, as well as some parts of the US state, had even envisioned that atomic weapons and energy would be put under UN control to prevent them being used and preventing <laughs> the incentive. Yeah, oh yeah. It, was, it was a real thing, um, preventing the incentive for other countries to develop them in response. Um, this actually didn't happen. It was something called the Baruch Plan. And uh, Baruch, the, it was something called the Baruch Plan. And uh, it was actually vetoed by the Soviet Union because, you know, understandably, didn't trust the, uh, the US and Britain to keep these between themselves. They wanted to develop one for themselves. Yeah. Otherwise known as a deterrence. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's hard to imagine, as well, it's hard to imagine now, but there was still a degree of separation and competition between the UK and the US in geostrategic terms, including tacit fears on the part of the US that the British might use an atomic bomb to extend their imperial tenure. Foreign Secretary Ernest Bevin, it is said, wanted a British atomic bomb so as not to be humiliated by the US in an era before NATO or the Soviet atomic bomb existed. We've got to have this thing over here, whatever it costs, he is reported to have told one committee, and we've got to have the bloody Union Jack on top of it. (laughs) To be fair, Mm. on the Americans, and I don't usually say that, when was it that there was like the thing with the British asking the Americans to promise to nuke Hong Kong if the Chinese tried to take it? Uh, was that really? Yeah, I I'm seem, sure yeah, I I seem to remember it was some kind of declassified paper. Yeah, the, yeah, you know, but like, I mean, it, it, you know, you'd think like, no, the British would you actually would they actually like nuke a place rather than lose it? One hundred percent, they would. I mean, it's it's more like if you're looking at um, the situation between the British Empire and the United States, like all of the British Empire's um, more informal imperial outposts. So you're talking like um, Iran, uh, Saudi Arabia. Yeah. They always had better relationships with the British before the war. Yeah. And obviously after the war, oil was so much more important. And mm-hmm. they kind of, the US kind of assumes a hegemonic role in those in those regions. And there is always the possibility the British would, strike back at that and not want that to be a thing like you wouldn't think about it now because of the close relationship and the the kind of amount we've basically become at the 51st state but you that was a, a genuine fear on for u.s policymakers you yeah know? um 
So, yeah, the, the wartime cabinet had largely been excluded from Churchill and Roosevelt's collaborations over the bomb. And Attlee would continue this trend of leaving the cabinet out of it, appointing the Gen 75 committee made up of a ring of senior ministers, including Attlee, Herbert Morrison, Ernest Bevin and Stafford Cripps. Um, and while these Gen committees had papers and meetings, its findings were not reported to the cabinet at large, which some have speculated was because Attlee did not trust the reactions of the left wingers in his cabinet, like uh, an Iron Bevan. Um, apparently, Gen 75, this secret atom bomb committee, mm. as Attlee called it, was not secret enough, as a second committee, Gen 163, a much smaller and more select group, was the body that actually took the decision to pursue an independent nuclear bomb in 1947. Um, it's also worth noting that Attlee's cabinet, even if it had gone to cabinet, Attlee's cabinet minutes show that ministers did not discuss whether to make a bomb, only how many nuclear reactors or piles to commission. Hmm. Nuclear weapons production is intimately involved with nuclear power. Uh, nuclear fission produces the material required for weapons. And it's notable that all the nuclear plants were to be built in the UK itself, none in the Commonwealth, although Australia would be used for testing sites. Yeah. Um, well, the Russian bomb test, to be oh, fair. In fairness, there is, like, <laughs> there are, if you're going to test if, nuclear weapons... If you have to, yeah. if you absolutely have to test a nuclear weapon... Yeah. Hmm. Uh, the Russian bomb test in August 1949 removed any doubt that nukes uh, were going to go away. It lifted Russia to the status of a dual superpower with the US and accordingly moved Britain down the rank to ju being just some scrub nation. <laughs> um, for British, it's, that's not true, obviously, but, you know, it's funny to say that um, because they've never accepted it. Um, <laughs> For British strategists, the rise of this weapon in the hands of new hegemons was terrifying. No longer would sea power and technology be able to keep conflict far removed from the imperial core. What's more, the previous World War II type conflict was virtually guaranteed to never happen again. There would never be another total war like the one they had just prepared for and won with full mobilisation, bomb shelters, um, or of earlier wars of imperial proxy warfare of nations manoeuvring and securing key assets and territory. I should say, at this stage anyway, obviously, yeah. once the immediate threat of nuclear conflict receded, these types of imperial warfare did come back, proxy yeah. warfare and, and territorial warfare and things like that. But to put it simply, as far in the minds of uh, British policymakers, there was no point in having a new type of concrete to build bomb shelters when one of these things could wipe out a city. Yeah. Um, so on the 3rd of October 1952, the British atomic bomb was tested for the first time on the Montebello Islands, 70 miles off the coast of Australia. It was a near replica of the American plutonium bomb produced by British scientists who had worked on the Manhattan Project. However, the bombs were not deployed until 1955, as they had no planes ready that could carry it. <laughs> they had thought about the bomb, but not about how it would be delivered. <laughs> uh, this, would, this would not be the first strategic setback suffered by the British nuclear programme. Less than a month after the British tested their first fission bomb, the US tested their first hydrogen bomb, hundreds of times more devastating than the atomic bombs the UK had just unveiled. Cut. The Soviets would soon would soon follow with a hydrogen bomb of their own. Oh, Britain was left Britain was left with an expensive atomic weapon that had been outclassed <laughs> before it even had a chance to be deployed. <laughs> oh, it just makes you just, just makes you want to stand up and salute the flag. 
<laughs> um, just a quick note on the difference between, like, uh, you might know this, but there's the difference between atomic bombs or fission bombs and hydrogen bombs or fusion bombs. A fission bomb uses uranium or plutonium and relies on fission, in which, like, a nucleus or an atom breaks apart into two pieces, releasing a load of energy. Um, a hydrogen bomb re relies on fusion, which is the process of taking two separate atoms and banging them together to form a third atom, essentially releasing many, many times more explosive death power. A hydrogen bomb is more lightweight and easier to handle, but a lot more complicated to put together and actually use. Right. Um, oddly, rather than accept that the demands of producing a hydrogen bomb were too much, Anthony Eden agreed to a secret plan that if Britain couldn't produce a hydrogen bomb, they would just focus on producing bigger and bigger fission bombs. <laughs> we'll just sell a tape two together. The largest of which, codenamed Green Grass, was around 25 times the power of the Hiroshima bomb. Compare this to the Tsar Bomba, the largest Russian, and in fact, the largest world nuclear test ever conducted, which was around three and a half thousand times the power of Hiroshima. Um, as the 50s progressed, it was clear how far behind the British were. Replicating the hydrogen fusion bomb proved difficult, and a British version was not fully tested until 1957, when Britain, quote, became the third thermonuclear power, meaning they've detonated a hydrogen bomb. Yeah. Or at least that's the official story. Of the two, quote, hydrogen, unquote, bombs tested in 1957, the first was a failure. Uh, it failed to produce the explosive power expected. Hydrogen bombs, they explode first time, and then they have a series of chain reactions, which actually produces the majority of the explosive power. Okay. And it didn't it didn't go off that way. Um, the second, codenamed Orange Herald, was thought by everyone, including the pilots who dropped it, to be a hydrogen bomb, but was actually a modified fission bomb. <laughs> it wasn't an H-bomb. It was a very, very large A-bomb, like Eden, Eden wanted. Yeah. The UK government has been very cagey ever since about the exact figures that resulted from this test, as they would reveal that the tests did not even approach the megatonnage that a fully successful hydrogen bomb should have been capable of. That's so British. It's beautiful. It's amazing. And you'll see why in a second, because in 1958, Harold Macmillan signed the US-UK Mutual Defence Agreement, which is still in force today, and... And never appears before Parliament to be ratified. It's very odd. It mm. was re-ratified. It's still it's still in force. It's still like re-ratified yeah. in in 2014. Um, and despite questions being put down about the government's intention to renew the MDA agreement, um, the first Parliament and public heard about it was Obama announcing it to Congress. Huh. Um, which you know I think it's possibly worth asking why, when a historically a majority of MPs never vote down nuclear deals, the British state still feels like it has to creep the treaty through. Yeah. It's weird. Anyway, this uh, agreement allows for the sharing of nuclear secrets and designs between the US and the UK. At the time, the successful launch of Sputnik had spooked the US government um, and uh, scared about apparent reverses in the arms race, they started looking for greater strategic advantage. On Britain's part, the wind-scale plant fire in 1957 had started to make the British government realise how risky and expensive a solo nuclear weapons and energy effort would be. The wind-scale plant, later renamed Sellafield, was, for the early part of its life, solely for the production of bomb material. It didn't actually supply, start supplying electricity until 1956. Huh. Um, the wind-scale fire was the worst nuclear accident in British history, uh, a lot worse than Three Mile Island. Um, and information of it was suppressed by Macmillan for fear of spooking the Americans, to the extent that he ordered extra copies of the report, as well as the printer's type used to print the report, destroyed. 
Why was he bothered about spooking the Americans? Well, it seems that the goal of the 1957, <laughs> quote, hydrogen test, unquote, was really to show the Americans that the UK was a competent partner and had achieved the same level of technology that they had in nuclear weapons. The successful test... <laughs> it's, it's like, okay, look, we'll, they'll let us in the club. What we've got to do is, okay, they don't think we're tall enough, so we'll put two atom bombs on each on their shoulders and put a big trench coat on it. Hugh, you know what they say in AA, mate, fake it till you make it. Yep. And they literally did fake it till they make it, by the way. Um, the, the successful test of a British hydrogen bomb allowed the US to consider... Britain not as a simple nuclear power, but one who had, quote, achieved a, an advanced state of weapon research and development in both the fission and thermonuclear fields. The UK essentially tricked the US into thinking it had kept up. Bruce. Wasn't yeah, it wasn't exactly that. It wasn't exactly like that, but it is very funny to consider that, yeah, that was probably not true. <laughs> um so uh, David Edgerton, um, in The Rise and Fall of the British Nation, uh, notes that in the 1950s, defence spending was around 10% of GDP. Now, that's far higher than it had ever been in peacetime and was also higher than it had been in 1913 or 1938. But by the late 1950s, currency crises started to bite. The dissolution of the empire was thought to be all but inevitable, and unilateral military action had largely been ended by the embarrassment at Suez. The 1957 Sandy's defence white paper ended conscription and refocused the UK's military away from air power and towards missiles. In the future, Britain's defence expenditure, rather than colonial warfare utilising manpower and technology, would be geared towards fighting nuclear war. This actually made the UK the first power to officially put nuclear deterrence at the heart of its defence strategy. And it harked back to a, a, a previous era where the British state's traditional instincts and practices were to have small professional high-tech militaries with resulting lower constant expenditure. Mm. The UK's foreign policy objectives have become unmoored from imperial policy, and it was becoming more settled along what would be Cold War lines, which meant essentially subordination to the US. For its part... What the US wanted was not an army to fight the Soviets, but geographically closer missile bases. This probably seemed the easier way of marrying up the twin objectives of having a bomb and not making it or paying for it yourself. Yeah. Um, it wasn't just as a partner that the UK drew closer to the US, but as a customer, as part of the military industrial complex. In the early 60s, certain voices in the Kennedy administration questioned the usefulness of the US atomic cooperation with the UK, considering it an expensive distraction from the main arms race, needing constant upgrades to Britain to remain competitive, and too weak to really form a real deterrent. Yeah. After an agreement to develop US-designed Skybolt missiles fell apart in a very public and embarrassing fashion, with US officials like Robert McNamara and Dean Acheson saying publicly that they didn't see why the American taxpayers should subsidise British attempts to retain world power status, the UK negotiated to buy the Polaris system, which would exist under the control of NATO forces, with the weak proviso that it could be reassigned if, quote, supreme national interests were at stake. Mm -hmm. um, so the British nuclear deterrent was put under the control of NATO. Um, yeah. Bear in mind that the commander of NATO, who is always an American general, could take control of NATO forces in the event of a crisis. And any crisis that required the family atomics to be repatriated was automatically a crisis that would involve NATO, right? Yeah. You know, if Britain's being threatened, if yeah. Britain's interests are being threatened, that kind of involves NATO because it's really realistically going to be the Russians. It's not going to yeah. be the French or anyone else. Um, the only real innovate British innovation from the 50s in the field of nuclear warfare was apparently underground missile silos. That's mm -hmm. right. The British contribution to civilization was a hole in the ground. Fantastic. 
<laughs> this was no longer interdependence, but dependent, full dependence on the US and its nuclear arsenal. And this was reflected in the mechanic of Britain's own nuclear deterrent. The British thermonuclear bomb was derived from the American W-28. Most of the operational warheads through the 50s and 60s were of American provenance. The first nuclear power submarine, HMS Dreadnought, had a US-built reactor. And it wasn't just rebadged US components, but also actual US atomic bombs. US nukes had been on British soil since the early 50s, and the first aircraft bombs, ICBMs, submarine missiles on British soil would be US-owned and operated. Through the 50s and 60s, the RAF was also mostly using US nukes as their own, having a stockpile of 71 of its own fission bombs, but prepared to drop uh, 168 US-owned bombs if water were to, were to break out. <clears throat> US warheads would actually be equipped by British forces until 1992, meaning for most of the Cold War, the most significant portion of nuclear weapons on British soil were the instruments of the US and not an independent deterrent. The actual ownership of the nukes housed in Britain is actually kind of murky, um, sometimes in British hands, other times in NATO hands, which, as we said before, would put, put, be put under US command in the event of a crisis, or even under direct US command. There are still 13 US military bases, technically leased by the RAF and with the RAF name on them, but almost entirely sealed from the British public and British law. Use of British bases for US nuclear weapons was a hangover of World War II, and use of forces from those bases is technically subject to a joint decision between British and American commanders, which is pretty ambiguous for a decision that would have to be made in a few minutes. Yeah. You know, yeah. if there is a crisis, who is going to actually command that these US-made nukes in these US army bases surrounded by US soldiers <laughs> carried by US planes um, get used, you know? I find it weird that US military bases actually never really come up in like either patriotic forever war discourse or yeah. left wing talk about radical change. Well like um even like you know when that like, you know, there got ten... run over. Um I mean yes, that's a perfect example. That was yeah. like but even then they didn't talk about, you know, wait maybe these bases shouldn't be here. Um like even in South Korea they're like real they have like very active anti American base protests for like groups. Yeah. Whereas yeah, here, there like, are like, we drive past one like, to go to my in-laws like every time. Yeah. And it is like, it's weird because the houses, like you can see where they, all they live on base and they're very American. It's just like, it yeah. looks weird. But I don't, yeah, I don't they're know. They're like, sketchy. They're like 20, I think there are like 20,000 US military personnel Fantastic. in the UK. That's and it's fine. like, like that, if you actually really seriously wanted to do something and like break away from the military covenant whatever yeah. it is you probably like couldn't yeah <laughs> like well, a government couldn't we've seen a very british coup yeah exactly yeah yeah you i mean as a side note as well yeah sorry karen it was like um you wouldn't have like would you let like could you imagine a country other than america having bases in a like in another country with like twenty thousand people in and it just being fine I mean, can you imagine a French military base in the UK? No, never. Like, that's the thing, isn't it? Like, yeah. it, it just would never happen. And it also, actually, speaking of France, it does um, put into context the British state's hostility to an EU army. You know how there's that, the worst thing the EU could ever have done to Britain yeah. is to have an EU army or a joint military response to anything? Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, you can say that that's partially cultural, but it's, it's so vis visceral and is put out basically on every on every possible channel. You have to think some of that comes from the fact that the state has a really in-depth agreement with the Americans and they physically couldn't. Yeah. Like 
there are things about nukes that they wouldn't be able, even though France has nuclear weapons, there are things they wouldn't be able to share with France because they can't talk about any nuclear stuff from like from like 1958 onwards. And if you think about like the ultimate penalty for trafficking uh, U.S. weapon designs yeah. uh, and nuclear information to foreign nationals, it's essentially death under U.S. law, right? You can be put to death for that. And the U.S. has never been like that funny about executing people in other countries. Yeah. I mean, does that mean a British citizen gets executed like by drone strike if they talk to a French national about nuclear secrets? You know? Yeah. Even though they have that, it's very strange. It is. It's even actually it's even speculated that one of the reasons that France uh, vetoed British entry to the EEC for so long is that any move towards um, a European military cooperation would be compromised by the agreements the UK had with the US. De Gaulle expected the UK to break with the US first, yeah, before they were allowed into the EEC. Understandably, um, yeah, it, it, it even affected um, civilian nuclear applications because those are also covered by the Mutual Defence Treaty. Um, there was a time in the sixties Britain wanted to cooperate with Germany and Holland on uranium enrichment plants for um, atomic energy. Yeah. And the U.S. actually asserted that because they used info oh. information from a U.S. origin, um, it breached the treaty. Huh. Um, I think they actually ended up being able to cooperate, but the U- U.S. did challenge it in with the British government. Yeah. It's very strange. It does like, open up a lot yeah. of, like, whenever there's weird deals made with regards to nuclear stuff. Yeah. Um, so essentially, the the UK started the nuclear age as something of a pioneer, but ended it as a as a supplicant. Yeah. Um, and of course, this didn't go on without um, without opposition, as with many countries. You mentioned um, South Korea, um, as with many countries, there was opposition to nuclear weapons in the UK. Um, it kind of came in waves. Um, it started to coalesce seriously as the uh, the relationship with the US formalised. There had always been a strain of establishment opinion against the development of nuclear weapons. Uh, The left-wing physicist Patrick Blackett, who won the Nobel Prize in Physics for his work on cosmic rays, believed that Britain should not develop nuclear weapons. um, And he had actually served on the Maud Committee that sketched out the first designs for nuclear weapons. Um, But his anti-nuclear stance made him too radical for the Clement Attlee government to employ him in 1945. (laughs) Despite the fact that he had spent the entire war working in military research. Oh, it was always Luke's the nukes party, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. um, in 1955, Anoyan Bevan led 62 MPs to vote against the development of the British hydrogen bomb um, against the whip of the Labour opposition leadership. Bevan had the whip removed and was actually almost expelled. Um, but by 1957, in order to avoid a Labour civil war, Bevan towed the line saying that unilateralists were gripped by an emotional spasm and not to send a future Labour foreign secretary naked into the conference chamber. This really was the end of the, that first phase, that Bevanite phase of the Labour left hmm. um, and was probably, I'd say, not the first betrayal. The first betrayal was the formation of the Labour Party, but <laughs> was was one of those significant uh, 20th century splits between the yeah. left and Labour. However, Bevan's change of heart towards nuclear weapons also had the effect of moving opposition to nukes outside of Parliament. Um, When novelist J.B. Priestley published an article in The New Statesman criticising Bevan for flipping, it became the impetus for a variety of political, cultural and religious figures concerned about megadeths Mm -hmm. to found the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, or CND. Um, It led huge marches in the 50s and 60s between London and the Atomic Weapons Research Establishment at Aldermaston in Berkshire. 
And CND's greatest influence on politics came in 1960, when the Labour Party conference passed a unilateralist, unilateralist motion, which was promptly ignored by the Gates School leadership. <laughs> Harold Wilson's Labour went into the 1964 election with a policy specifically against the purchase of the Polaris system from the US. More on that later. But of course, framed with the patriotic notion that the money was better spent on conventional military forces. This roughly reflected broad, broad liberal opinion in the UK at the time. Uh, the independent deterrent was a fiction on the one hand, and futile compared to the US and, UK and USSR's nuclear stockpile on the other. On a wider scale, between 1955 and 1962, public opinion wavered between 19 and 33% disapproval of the manufacture of nuclear weapons, with the number falling after nuclear test ban treaties and after the end of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Paradoxically, Cuba especially seemed to have a suppressing effect on, su on support for anti-nuclear causes, possibly because the threat of apocalypse receded and the reassurance that the US and Soviets wouldn't really launch nukes because, yeah. you know, deter deterrence was working and they were both rational. Mm -hmm. Once in power, Harold Wilson went ahead and deployed four Polaris-equipped <laughs> submarines anyway, because he was Harold Wilson and this was the fucking Labour Party. Yep. In his eyes, he had delivered on the promise because he had reduced the number of nuclear death boats from five to four. <laughs> uh, if See, I, that's I'm just desperate. A, no, look, you got. It's all about compromise. Look, the Labour Party is a big tent, and in that tent, we could fit. Everyone. There are room. <laughs> There's room for four mushroom clouds. Exactly. Opposition to nuclear policy from the right tended to come from that weird angle that I think Peter Hitchens is part of now, that like independently minded conservative patriot angle. Yeah. You know, that enmeshment in American military affairs erodes British sovereignty, that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, they're not Enoch Christian enough. <laughs> yeah. Enoch Powell, of all people, yeah. um, was anti-nuclear later in his career. And he stated in the 60s that the last self-protective layer of imperial delusion was the nuclear deterrent, independent or otherwise. <laughs> was he against nuclear weapons because it kills white people and black people indiscriminately? It was more, I think, because he, he mourned the death of the empire but he wanted to accept it and focus on, the, on, the, on kind of Europe. Okay. You know, that kind of, again, that weird conservative... That weird conservative tendency that is kind of equal parts white supremacist, like white nationalist and libertarian. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So outside of white nationalists and the blessed fucking Labour Party, <laughs> um, the most public opposition to nuclear weapons was CND. Mm -hmm. uh, CND is probably too big a topic. It's definitely too big a topic to go into here. But it's enough to say that CND was the middle-class radical organisation of the time, yeah. utilising the intellectual middle classes and a large base of allied support across the Liberals and the left, lobbying the Labour Party and the government to adopt unilateral disarmament. After its zenith in the 60s, CND got a second wind in the 80s. Public opposition to nuclear war was undergoing one of its resurgent phases, hardened by the decision to base US ICBM missiles in the UK at Greenham Common, implemented by the Tories, but agreed to by Labour. Mm -hmm. In 1983, 300,000 people joined an anti-nuclear demo in London to, pro to protest the deployment. Peace camps were established at Fastlane Naval Base near Glasgow and at Greenham Common. Uh, City Fastlane Council's... Still there. It is, yes. Yeah, it is. 
Um, city councils declared themselves nuclear free, apparently up to 200 local authorities at one point, refusing to take part in civil defence exercises and on paper refusing to have nuclear material shipped through the territory. But that's pretty impossible to stop. Yeah. Um, some local authorities like Manchester are still um, officially nuclear free to this day. Huh. Um the resurgence and intensified Cold War atmosphere prosecuted by neoconservatives in the 80s also stoked official and quasi-official state opposition to these anti-nuclear groups. CND had been classified subversive for most of the 60s and 70s due to its support from the British Communist parties, but the 80s incarnation vote motivated a more, shall we say, spook-centric reaction from conservative and police forces. A number of attacks on CMD came from an organisation called the Coalition for Peace Through Security, oh uh, founded by Julian Lewis, now MP for New Forest East huh. and chair of the Intelligence and Security Committee. Fantastic. He once posed as a he once posed as a Labour moderate and briefly won control of Newham North East CLP in order to highlight militant tendency entryism. Um, huh. Another another founder was Edward Lee, now Sir Edward Lee, MP for Gainsborough. And uh, Francis Holohan, a roller skate importer who tried to infiltrate CND by offering them free roller skate hire for events. Amazing. <laughs> um, this organisation had direct links to uh, Tory Central Office, and it was one of the early attempts to import the New Rights fundraising and lobbying structures to the UK with connections to the Heritage Foundation and to the Centre for Policy Studies, etc., mm -hmm. etc. Um, you might say this is a bit that's a bit of conspiracy theory, but the main pro-nuclear astroturf in the US was actually called the Coalition for Peace Through Strength. So <laughs> I don't think it's too much of a you know a wandering to suggest that they might have had similar foundings. Yeah. Um, the CPS commissioned Gallup polls showing UK support for nukes, disrupted CND meetings, and produced leaflets calling CND communists, neutralists, and defeatists. Um, they also sent infiltrators into the CND offices, trying to link the organisations as a Soviet front, and tried to smear its chairman, Bruce Kent, as an IRA supporter. Is this sounding familiar? Uh -huh. um, there's a lot of shady stuff in that that I'm actually really interested in. Might cover it in a future episode as well. But... Um, CND definitely got swept up into the activity, activities of the intelligence agencies as well. Um, from a report from The Independent in 2012, uh, 20COY, a territorial army body, was set up to infiltrate anti-war groups. A memo from a general in 1979 reveals, quote, the change of government provides an excellent opportunity for the unit to play a more active role and to provide information about groups whose activities and interests are not beneficial and are opposed to the armed forces. The unit is well placed to do this because its members are civilians. Huh. An operations room was set up at a building in North London and a former sergeant with the unit said the ops room's desks were strewn with political newspapers, newsletters and leaflets, card collation files and annotated street maps. Those targeted were pacifists, anti-arms trade, anti-nuclear, radical and socialist organisations, groups like the Peace Pledge Union, Troops Out and CND branches. Some of the undercover soldiers became officials in the organisations they had infiltrated, and one was even elected a membership secretary. <laughs> um, the former Sergeant Whistleblower said, on one occasion, one of the infiltrators were chanting anti-military slogans with a crowd opposite the entrance of the Royal Tournament at Earl's Court, while slipping away periodically to the 20COY office inside in order to give updates. Oh, my God. One hesitates to use the word provocateur. Yeah. <laughs> 
Which, um, um, like we'll do it. We'll probably will cover CND in a later episode. Like, I think it's well, well worth it's like, covering. Yeah, with all the stuff that's coming out with the Spy Cops trial, we'll probably cover that as well when that's all finished. But like none of no, any time anything comes out about the British state's infiltration of literally any group, it's never surprising, really. <laughs> yeah, it's all. I mean, there's also the element of CND got dragged into kind of um, the loony left kind of culture war stuff. Yeah. As well, I, I definitely remember like a CND badge being used as a sign of ridicule in like yeah. sitcoms yeah, and stuff like that. It was part of this attempt to kind of market a grab bag of com- Comrade Wolfie esque signifiers yeah. that marked a left winger out as a symbol of suspicion and ridicule. You know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, the attitude of the state and its outlying organizations were clear. A non nuclear armed UK was unthinkable. The UK was a nuclear power or it was nothing. Um, and being a nuclear power meant an endless schedule of upgrades. Um, the UK had been fielding Polaris since 1968, and it had a lifespan built in from when it was purchased and was expected to become obsolete by the 90s. The Labour Party, despite flirtations with disarmament under Harold Wilson, um, had steadily funded and modernised Polaris throughout the 70s, including an estimated billion pounds on trying to upgrade it to evade Soviet radar. The nature of the Cold War arms race meant that as technology advanced, there was this constant evolution as defense systems improved or strategies changed, which is why they talk about renewing Trident. It's essentially like giving it the fanciest stuff, giving it it the latest patch. Yeah. Um, It just means bringing it up to meet the kind of technology of expected opposition. Of course, what opposition that is becomes more philosophical after 1991. But yeah, there we go. Uh, Jim Callahan had begun sounding out Jimmy Carter on purchasing the new Trident C4 missile, and these negotiations continued after Thatcher won in May 1979. Carter at the time was trying to agree limits on the nuclear arms race in the form of the SALT II treaty with the USSR, but in 1980 they agreed to sell the Trident C4 to Britain for £2.5 billion and some British concessions, such as Britain paying towards the cost of maintaining US missile batteries in the UK, and the expansion of the U.S. base on Diego Garcia, which, of course, would eventually be used for extraordinary rendition in the War on Terror era. As with most other nuclear decisions, the cabinet was largely excluded from this decision, and it was just announced that the deal had been signed. However, in November 1980, Ronald Reagan was elected. Uh, He stood on a platform of military expansion and modernization, as you might have heard, As such, the U.S. announced it would be replacing the C-4 with a newer missile, the Trident D-5. And the U.K. was left with the choice of an out-of-date system, more expensive as they wouldn't be able to mooch components or facilities off the U.S., or a brand new negotiation, potentially at a vastly inflated price tag. The Thatcher government could try and reduce the conventional military to make the price more palatable to a government and society that was, after all, supposed to be reducing public expenditure. But even this was difficult, as part of this aggressive new US strategy involved asking NATO countries to boost their forces to counter the USSR. The US, again, didn't really need the UK's nuclear capacity as such, but there were other strategic resources that the UK could share or you know, beef up for the benefit of the US military plan. In particular, the US sought to incorporate the UK more closely with its military expansion plans. At one point, tying in the notion to the deal of retaining some forces in Belize, which was a former colony the UK were trying to cut loose. US anti-communist actions in South America would be widespread and infamous, <laughs> let's say, yeah. in the 1980s. And the UK covering Belize allowed the US to deploy and increase their naval presence elsewhere. That's nice. As the increase, yeah, 
As the increasing financial and strategic costs became more visible during negotiations, a number of cabinet ministers started voicing concerns that the UK remaining a nuclear power was just too expensive. They were so dependent on US technical know-how that any other alternatives to fully overhaul the system without the US would just prove too expensive. At the same time, however, the US were fully aware that it was not in their interests to undercut the Tory government completely, as they knew waiting in the wings amidst record unemployment was a Labour Party under Michael Foote, a founder member of CND, with unilateral disarmament as party policy. In the end, British Trident got off relatively lightly publicly, Mm. um, as it was not seen, it was only seen as a continuation of existing policy and not a new innovation like the cruise missiles on, on Green and Common. You know, yeah. it wasn't adding to things, it was just replacing things that already existed. Yeah. The eventual deal they signed under the eventual deal they would sign, the UK would pay the same rates on overheads as the original agreement they uh, agreed with Jimmy Carter. But in a cunning bit of business, the US would use part of this payment from the UK to set up a project liaison office that would advise British companies on how to tender for contracts <laughs> in the US defence structure and would also uh, allow UK companies to become eligible for lucrative contracts within the wider Trident programme. You see, what they're doing there is gelling together US and British arms manufacturers, cementing this transatlantic arms trade that serves the material interests of those companies in favour of the increased nuclear expenditure. Because you've also got to remember that like, arms companies aren't necessarily thrilled with increased spending on nuclear because it means less spending on conventional arms. And it being nuclear, they are excluded from it. You know, it's, it's top secret. And if it's US owned and operated, British companies are going to be cut out of that. Well, this cut them a slice. Um, it also made the deal more difficult for a Labour government to cancel as they would face opposition from the arms industry who now had an intensified financial interest in the nuclear deterrent being maintained. Hmm. Labour opposed Trident up until 1989 when Neil Kinnock changed Labour Party <laughs> policy away from unilateralism. Yeah. Labour governments have supported nuclear weapons ever since. <sighs> so eventually... The Tories got the Trident deal they always wanted, the US cooperation that Tory Atlanticists always wanted, and the US got to kick another ally's socialist movement while it's down. More than just nukes, I think it's these extras that have such a corrosive effect yeah. and, and really show the, like, the corrosive effect that US hegemony has had on UK's political life that I think really doesn't really get fully appreciated or discussed, even in even in left-wing circles. Mm. We just kind of accept that like most of the most of the stuff we watch and most of the lifestyle patterns we have end up being roughly equivalent to life in America, yeah. life in, an, in the American capitalist sphere, you know? Yeah. Um, and also it showed that the thing about British nukes is it's actually kind of hard to get that exercised over the British ones in particular because they're so inconsequential. You're arguing against like 200 warheads in a world of what in 1986 was 70,000, you know? What's actually significant is the patterns that the British state has deformed itself into to keep their 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 big boy badge. Yeah. Um, the independent British nuclear weapon hasn't existed for most of the 20th century, despite it routinely being referred to as such right up to the present day. It was a vanity project that became a vanity PR exercise. Britain had neither the expertise nor the money to maintain their own bomb. And instead, it became a public relations trinket a fake knighthood the country gave to itself to prove it was still in the top tier. What's more fascinating, everybody knows it. You turn it into a bomb? Yeah. Why? Because that's the problem with plutonium, Craven. It's limited in its application. (laughs) 
It's not user-friendly, but as a vehicle for regaining one's self-respect, ooh, it's got a lot going for it. Absolutely everybody. Like, Trident isn't British. Its missiles, its guidance systems, its control systems are all made in the US. They are actually serviced in Georgia in the US. The submarines that uh, are used for Trident are made in Barrow and Furnace, but most of their systems come from the US. The warheads are an American design, and all of their kind of like guidance systems and all of their um, targeting information comes from America. If you think this is just like nitpicking kind of supply chain stuff, because I've seen in researching this, I see a lot of angry letters saying, actually, you'll, I think you'll find we bought it and now we completely control it. Hmm. Um, Professor Norman Dombey, who's a longtime nuclear commentator, puts it this way, quote, one way to test what is meant by operational independence is to ask whether the British Trident could target New York. The answer is that it couldn't. Potential nuclear strikes targets are drawn up at US Stratcom headquarters, where there is a UK liaison. There is a UK targeting centre in London, and British plans can be incorporated if they are approved into the US plan. But the targeting software is provided by Stratcom and the Joint Warfare Analysis Centre in Virginia. The UK is dependent on the US for this software, which includes data that the UK cannot provide about weather over the target, for example, which needs to be relayed to the Trident fleet from the US. The Trident fleet, in practice, is an adjunct of the US Navy with a UK veto on the use of its missiles. New York could not be attacked by Trident because Stratcom has not prepared the software that would be required. So did you literally just say, like, target not, <clears throat> like, target not allowed, like you played a computer game? It, it's... It needs the kind of because like you need like atmospheric conditions. Yeah, you need. I imagine it's pretty um, complicated. Like gravitate gravitation the water. Gravitational stuff um, provided by satellites. Yeah, like gravitational shifts and, and weather patterns and things like that. You need all of mm. that, and they have never targeted New York, so they could never. Yeah. you'd have to do a whole new thing, and the UK doesn't have any of that information or any of that facility. Yeah, I mean, even by the time like Trident wasn't deployed fully until 1994. Soviet Union was gone by then. Like yeah. the first, the very first Trident patrol, the missiles were detargeted from <laughs> their so, their Soviet objectives because it had just gone. There was no reason. They're, I think they're left in like free form. They're not actually physically targeted at things at the moment. <laughs> um, so, like more recently, um, Defense Secretary Ben Wallace confirmed in February of this year, 2020, if you hadn't realised. I don't know why I said that, um, that the British military would be developing a new nuclear warhead for Trident submarines. Uh, he prematurely announced this because the Defence Review was announced by Boris Johnson like a few weeks ago, yeah. but he announced this back in February. The reason was the US had already announced that they were upgrading their nuclear capability, and it was trying to piggyback on the announcement because it was assumed that the UK would be trying to get whatever they had while maintaining this idea that's independent. So yeah. the US go oh, yeah, we're upgrading our nuclear missiles. And Ben Wallace was like, oh, yeah, yeah, us too. Yeah, completely <laughs> separately from those guys. Yeah, we, yeah. We completely are. are different. They're red. The United, so this new warhead will be housed in the U.S. Navy's proposed new Mark 7 aero shell and is intended to be developed, quote, in parallel with the new U.S. W-93 warhead, sharing key design parameters and using some common non-nuclear components. 
Alan Schaefer, the Pentagon's Deputy Undersecretary of Defence, said at a summit that the W-93 and this British warhead will be, quote, two independent development systems. However, in April, Ben Wallace wrote to members of Congress on relevant committees claiming that their support to the W-93 programme, the American weapon, in this budget cycle is critical to the success of our replacement warhead programme and to the long-term viability of the UK's nuclear deterrent. I'd just like to say... My independent nuclear deterrent letter to Congress pleading for help making bombs is making people ask a lot of questions answered by my letter to Congress pleading for help making bombs. Um, yeah, all the subsequent defence reviews have reaffirmed the place of nuclear weapons in, in British politics. Uh, Tony Blair in the 2006 White Paper said, our independent nuclear deterrent has provided the ultimate assurance of our national survival. Many of the old certainties and divisions of the Cold War are gone. We cannot predict the way the world will look in 30 or 40, 50 years' time which is basically saying we could discuss why we need nukes. But just to let you know, we needed it because for the certainties of the Cold War, and now we need it for the uncertainties of some unspecified thing that might happen in the future. It could be but anything. What chance does that give anybody to mount any opposition? So if you have a, like, a long-term like, geopolitical enemy who you're not necessarily at war at, but you need to deter, you need to keep nukes. Yeah. But then at the same time, if everything's like multipolar and there's the rise of China and there's problems in the Middle East and there's terrorist groups, you also need to keep it for that. Well, look, you know, you've seen Independence Day. What would we have done if we didn't have nukes? Then those aliens would have won. (laughs) Well, I mean, the, the, the result, I mean, obviously, the result of having this kind of like nuclear policy dictated by vague sentiment means you have a maximum amount of maneuverability. Um, you don't have to say what they're for because a post-Cold War government wouldn't be sure what they're for, or even if they deter. Like, yeah. there was something mad I found. Like, when he was um, defence minister in 2003, Jeff Hoon stated that nuclear weapons could be used to deter a state which used chemical or biological weapons against US forces during the invasion of Iraq. And, like, the implicit thing there is, so now it's okay to use nukes against non-nuclear countries. Yeah. Like, okay, like... It actually also made me think about the fact that how does any of that make any sense, right? Follow me here. Okay. So the logic of deterrence is that your opponent is rational, right? They see a nuclear-armed country, and they wouldn't attack it with nukes. Yeah. Yeah? The main argument for invading Iraq was that there was the chance they would develop nukes, and if Saddam, Saddam had them, nuclear deterrence wouldn't work because he wasn't rational. Yeah. Yeah? So what Jeff Hoon is saying there is that Saddam was just rational enough to be deterred from using chemical or biological weapons for, against invading troops, but not rational enough to be deterred from using nuclear weapons if he got them. Look, the, well, it's really ex- <laughs> nuclear weapons are way more exciting, and Saddam might have been too giddy. <laughs> it's just these. I mean, these are the kind of trains you thought go down because if you take everything said about nukes at face value, because yeah. I mean. This is what happens every time. Their abstract, pointless hypotheticals come up because any discussion of nuclear weapons has to take place in the abstract because if it's not taking place in the abstract, you're not having the discussion because you're dead. Mm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Everybody knows British nukes are a trinket, but we have to pretend every time we have some like ritualistic public debate every 10 years or so when we have to buy more, everyone comes up with the hypotheticals. Yeah. You know, I can think of like maybe two times it's come up, which is like... Scottish independence, which obviously if Scottish independence happens, then nukes would have to be relocated from Clyde. Yeah. Um, And of course, along with every other topic in the fucking universe, you have to have an extended meditation on it when Corbyn came in. Yeah. Um, As an aside, it would be quite nice if like there had been any single policy area that like the press looked at with Corbyn and just goes, 
yeah, that's probably fine. Yeah. There's not one single thing. Anyway, yeah. Sorry, um, carry on. Yeah, I did, when I was looking up stuff about when Nukes talked about, in 2016, I think before Corbin got in, when they were being, when they were talking about upgrading the Trident ones, then mm. um, they did briefly talk about it again. But it's it was in such a like advertising way, you know, like um like the clip of um yes Prime Minister we played in in this, um yeah it, they still literally talk about it in the same way. There was a military guy talking about well you could you couldn't you couldn't really just have free submarines because it doesn't save that much money, um and you could <laughs> and the Trident is great because it can like it can hit somewhere like five thousand miles away or something. And you could mm. instead of that, you could put nukes on a cruise missile, but then you could only target St. Petersburg or Minsk. You can only target coastal cities. So that doesn't really, that's not really good enough. And they talk about it with like this kind of, like in this kind of passionless way, in the same way that if you're watching like a YouTube video on like fighting game tier lists and they talk about it in the exact same way. Yes. And it's, it's really, it, it, it's anxiety inducing. <laughs> Yeah, it's. I mean, it's because it's been specifically engineered so that the only two people you get talking about nuclear things are Piers Morgan screaming at Diane Abbott about yeah. what if ISIS get a bomb, yeah. and some military guy going, "Actually, it's a fait accompli. We're going to get this anyway. We might as well get the proper thing." Yeah, yeah. You know, whenever you're hearing a military spokesman and not a politician talk about it, you know that it's like it's a done deal. It's a yeah. it's a it's a decision that's already been made. They're just informing you of it. Yeah. You know, like it's this it's this weird like you end up with this like all this weird double shift because it's like we have to have a nuke because we still had it because we still have it. It has to be a deterrent, but a deterrent only works against a rational, like solidly placed enemy. But then every single fucking hypothetical that comes up is like, what if ISIS gets it? What if they invade France? And it's like, yeah. what if they do? What who you if ISIS at its height, right? Mm. Which covered a range of territory, um, from like uh, the middle of Syria down to Iraq, and they had a capital which was like Raqqa. It's like you don't need to nuke Raqqa. Raqqa's quite small, mm. and it wouldn't end ISIS. No. They were a, a mobile nomadic force. They weren't a state. Like you can talk about trying to stop ISIS or anything like that, but that's entirely separate from actually using nuclear weapons. Mm. You know, you wouldn't use it against North Korea. You just wouldn't. There wouldn't be any point. No. Because, like, it, oh, I just, yeah. I just think, like, there's so much of, what annoys me as well, so much of the logic of nukes is, like, it goes along with this kind of, like, Western supremacy. Yeah. So when you were talking about um, nukes in the Cold War, like, if you, again, if you're talking about the, the, the risks of the Soviet Union using a, a, a nuke, they were like, yeah, they're crazy cynical. They're irrational because they're cynical and all they care about is like the continuation of their state and their flag and they're all nationalistic. Whereas we in the West, we have all these great <laughs> philosophical reasons for existing, you know, like liberty and reason and medicine and the whole like defense of Western civilization kit back. <laughs> and like, yeah, you... When I was looking this up, I was trying to kind of figure out why nuclear discourse is like this. And yeah, obviously, like the derangement of the last few Corbyn years is is largely responsible for the really genuinely appalling talk that went on in 2017 and all that kind of thing. Yeah. Like in the last five years, how many liberals have scoffed at the idea of cancelling Trident and how many well, like defend, defended the use of nukes? Well, just the, um, you know? I think like the culmination of how ridiculous the will you press the button shit with Corbyn got 
was the um the debate with um what's her name um the squirrel killer oh Joe Swinson yeah yeah Joe Swinson with um um oh and um no it was the actually it wasn't that well she was like gleeful about the concept it, of it, of doing it but it was yeah also that was the, later the, on yeah yeah the um the leadership debate that the the Lib Dems had afterwards um where they both were where like, they yeah. are they yeah they asked the question and she was like yep. Yep. Without a shadow of a doubt. And it's like, I can't think that outside of the very specific circumstances of the last five years, that necessarily a Lib Dem leader would have been that like quick to respond about that. They might have equivocated because yeah. they thought they had a chance of power. Yeah. But in the Joe Swinson delusion, power went along with agreeing to nukes. Yeah. As, as like I say, a fait accompli. Yeah. You know? And like, I, I, it was just, it was more the kind of the knots that people tied themselves into. You know, you couldn't leave the EU because you needed humane and just and liberal government. But you absolutely need to support nukes as a, as a fundamental fact of being a British leader. Yeah. And, like, I, I, I've got to think that, like, that's, that's significant in a certain way. Because, like, nuclear discussion, like I say, is abstract. Mm. And in abstract, in abstract debates, um, like, mass opposition is helpful... But actually, the most convincing things do come from theoretical discussions like this around the use of nuclear weapons. Mm. You have to make people see that they're useless. You can you can lay down in front of trains and actually physically try to stop nukes getting deployed, but they're the most secured parts of the British military establishment. So your chances of getting rid of them that way are are, are less, right? Yeah. Um, and I just think that, like you know. Other countries have such significant anti-nuclear sections of their like middle class and their working class. Like you think about, yeah, you said South Korea and Germany, Japan, obviously, well, yeah, um, Japan. Netherlands. Japan is one that makes like think about it a lot, like with attitudes to nuclear weapons. Like it's not surprising that Japan has a very much we don't like nukes. <laughs> Un- unsurprising, yeah. yes. Um, but there's like there's certain things that they that they did like after Hiroshima. There's like the mayor of Hiroshima writes a letter every year, I think. Um, yeah, asking people to get rid of them. Um, but there's, I, I sent you a message about it. But the thing about the um, the water pipes in Hiroshima, that when it was yes. rebuilt, they kept the water pipes on in the streets, the ones that were warped and busted, They're shattered. Yeah, yeah, um, as like just little memorials everywhere. That mm. there's, whenever nukes are talked about, they never talk about what happens with them. And yeah, it's, they. That's the thing there, that there is... freaks me out. Like, um, it used to be like because I was watching a load of um, public service um, documentaries about what to do in a state. It was um, protect and survive. Um, I watched yeah. that, and I watched like um some documentaries about the history of nuclear weapons and the civil defense stuff, which actually talked about the nitty gritty of what will happen if mm. a bomb drops. If people still talk, if they, if the government still did stuff like that, there would be more of an anti-nuclear sentiment. Yes, one hundred percent. Yeah, and it's interesting that they just gave up on that stuff. Well, it's funny because I mean, because you do get kind of things that come up every now and again. I mean, like there's a lot of there's a lot of cultural opposition to nukes yeah. in Britain. Like you think of films like Threads. Yeah. There's um, When the Wind Blows, mm-hmm. the um, Raymond Briggs cartoon, which is mm-hmm. harrowing. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got TV shows like Edge of Darkness. Yeah. And even in like music, you think of like like Sabbath. A yeah. lot of their early stuff is about nuclear stuff. Punk obviously has like conflict and discharge and things yeah. like that. And even like um, 
like comics, like uh, 2000 AD. Yeah. 2000 AD is virtually all like post-apocalyptic, post-nuclear yeah. um, stuff, you know, like and very specific about the science of how it would work. Yeah. yeah, it goes it goes like kind of off the rails with like mutant stuff, but the actual no, this large tracts of this place will be uninhabitable, and we're, and even to live in it, you will have to do an immense amount of reforming of your society. Yeah. Like they, you know, they they get that kind of thing, but like there's a that there's a kind of like it's underlaid with this like angry futility that like I think the reason why there's so many of those kind of cultural depictions in in like from Britain is that there was this sense of angry futility that we would never be able to approach the state and actually have your anti-nuclear voice heard, have that debate, yeah. have any kind of power over the state's decision about whether to keep nuclear weapons or not, you know? Yeah. I think it's also interesting that like Fred's When the Wind Blows, Edge of mm. Darkness, these are old. 2000 mm-hmm. AD, old. Yeah, like Threads is from the 70s, When the Wind Blows is and Edge of Darkness are from the 80s. Mm. And yeah, you have like, yeah, punk and everything and yeah. Yeah, it was all a long um, time ago. It's yeah. like we've had very much a. It's quite a lot of lib. Like I'm pretty. It must have been like lib. Yeah, you know, like you said with C and D, it was like a. It was a liberal thing. Um, mm. Liberals now don't seem to be that against it, and that's that's the worrying. It's a, thing. it's a very it's a very weird thing. I think there's something I've been thinking about over the past few months about the decline of kind of a, a, a liberal, not the idea of liberal humanism, because yeah. that is in decline, but it's in decline because of the material circumstances of the class that best promotes it. Yeah. And like, I think an activist middle class, yeah. um, some kind of like cross-class cooperation, because nuclear disarmament was one of those issues that united like the far left, the liberal left, even yeah. like center, center-right liberals, united them around this one particular issue because it was abstract and, was actually really also very clear. There was a clear dichotomy between you can't be like half for nukes and half not for nukes. Yeah. There was one, <laughs> there was one, um, I was almost going to try and work in some kind of like hot take, hmm. like invent a hot take, like nukes should be given to the NHS because uh, they, they have the Hippocratic oath <laughs> and therefore they'd never use them. Um, but actually from what my relatives have said through a life in the NHS, nurses would use them on patients in about 15 seconds. Oh, 100%. Um, but also realizing that any notions of humane political service aside, any idea of putting nukes beyond of having nukes, but putting them beyond beyond use, or of putting safeguards in, removing them from active conflict, basically making them less likely to be used in any way, completely ruins their efficacy. Like yeah. pro-nuclear people are right in that sense, because if you move one iota towards the non-use of non-use of nuclear weapons, you abolish their use. It's either or. Yeah. And I think there's a level of moral commitment to that that a modern middle class political person would shy away from yeah you know i mean we talk about their moral like treating the eu as if it's a moral uh campaign and yet right now there is no remain organization no none everybody shut up about it everybody stop talking about it that's not something you do with a deeply held moral commitment and i think there's there's an element to which that element of politics has moved away as the cross-class cooperation. I think the decline of the organised working class has come into this as well, because the activist liberal middle class don't have to, don't have to deal with that, don't have to actively engage with politics where those things are in play, where those forces are, are have an effect upon them. 
you know it's it's very weird but i think like did you see um sunny hundle the other day on twitter asking what the liberal yeah. left looks like without <laughs> corbyn <laughs> well, he and he was completely bereft gone yeah. didn't know what he believed in think... anymore he basically said well it should be the uh the corbyn program just without corbyn yeah and it's like are you fucking kidding <laughs> i mean somebody another kind of more Another guy kind of piped up. People seem to know who he was, but I, I didn't actually know who he was and said, oh, yeah, you know, we should get away from the 50s nationalisation and all that stuff. And, yeah, I guess that could, that's what a liberal left could look like. But that's what the Tories look like. Yeah. You know, their actual thing. And I have to think that, like, thinking like a Marxist, why the reason, one of the main reasons why that activist middle class doesn't exist anymore is that the class character of that middle class was formed by its privileges. They were the people who participated in politics and I think under Thatcher, you had this influx of wealth, property and commercial pressures into those positions. But you also had an influx of people like lower middle class mm. people and working the, the cream of the working class that they um, allowed to, you know, buy their own homes and stuff like that. You, you, you had a load of these kind of pressures moved into positions that were previously held by the privileged middle class. And so their independence uh, just goes. And yeah. I can only I mean. Of the modern people who I know of, I can genuinely think of, and I think I've mentioned this before, but Jolian Morgan. Well, yeah, he's, he's hilarious. He is hilariously funny in his own way, but I cannot think of any many more independent professional classes that campaign in the way that he does and on and approaches issues in an actual liberal way without well, trying to hedge or triangulate. Yeah, he's um, he is. It is weird when you see an honest to goodness liberal in the wild like actually doing incredible things. Yeah. like that fred that twitter fred he did where he was literally explaining like his journey on trans issues and admitting that you know he started from a not great place and has like listened and moved and talking about how um you've got to listen to young people otherwise you'll end up becoming what you didn't like when you were younger it was really nice and it's like yeah he's very rare though incredibly rare yeah mm. you know I, I mean i think obviously like the other side of the disappearance of anti-nuclear voices, you have to take in the state's interference as well. I mean, the 80s proved anything, and the Corbyn era proved anything. It was that you could conduct a multi-level suppression campaign against protest groups. You could agent provocateur meetings. You could get negative cultural depictions of particular political tendencies. And you could do all that without technically banning communism or socialism. Yeah. Which, you know, is a lesson the more authoritarian Labour politicians never really learned. Um, it's kind of odd. I mean, you think about nuclear weapons as like the preeminent existential threat of the 20th century. Yeah. Now you compare it to something like climate change. Yeah. Measures to combat climate change would be a necessary hobbling of capitalist expansion. And as we've gone into before, would completely transform everybody's lives. And, like, I feel like if this system can't do something as simple as put something like nukes, which are horrific and entirely unnecessary, if they cannot put those beyond them, what are they likely to be able to do with, with climate change? You know? Yeah. And, like, this isn't, like, uh, something to end negatively on. I just think it's, like, it's worth knowing, rather than all these hypothetical nuclear what-ifs, it's yeah. worth knowing what is. Yeah. You know, I don't... I think... Again, I've said it before, but I think there's been a very, very long kind of heartbreak with a lot of people who are, who would now consider themselves Corbynites, that liberals aren't there to support them, that, that liberals at every turn kind of actively resist them. And at, at, 
at some point you have to look at the material basis of this and say they're not there anymore there is only there is only us there is only the working class and everyone has their own different kind of objectives and, and priorities and, and adjust your political activity accordingly you know it's just it's not supposed to be a downer just to request that the left and anyone interested in addressing these things take those analyses seriously and learn from what happened like mm. in the 80s it's not always inevitable that the cops are going to get you it's not always inevitable that you're going to have liberals to support you and just just think about it in those terms yeah you know? yeah there's only one Julian morgan and he still hasn't paid his builders anyway <laughs> yeah, I mean there is that, of course. None, none of us are none of us are free from windmills. <laughs> none of us are free from having battered a fox to death in their kimono, in their wife's kimono. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, he's literally the last liberal, Hugh. Yeah, he is. <laughs> like that's that's crazy to think about. Yeah, and even him, we had to import. <laughs> So anyway, yeah, well, that's us talking about nukes. I, I, I just want to say one last thing. One thing I think is underappreciated is the social effect of nuclear capability. Nuclear weapons are not really about war. They're about the basic question of can the world exist? Does it deserve to exist without my country, without my society? It does no favours to the health and adaptability of a society to think that they are worth preserving over the rest of the world. The possession of nukes crystallises a society into a certain kind of form. It elevates certain things about your society to a level of prestige worth sacrificing all human existence for. I talked earlier about the letters that Trident captains get sent, there to be opened only as a last resort if the country has been destroyed. How do these captains find out if the country has been destroyed? Because remember, these are they don't have GPS, they, they may be on radio silence. If normal communications are out, how would an observer find out if British society exists? What is the constant, the bedrock, the eternal unchanging fact of British society, the installation of 10,000 years of human habitation on these septed isles? The fucking Today programme on Radio 4. I'm not joking. It is official nuclear policy that if those Trident captains don't hear the Today programme for three days straight, they're to open the envelopes and potentially launch their nuclear weapons. <laughs> Nick Robinson asking Lawrence Fox if he thinks he's been censored and cancelled. <laughs> See, I was about to joke and say when you were saying like what what is particularly British, I was going to say an article by Suzanne Moore complaining about trans people, and that hasn't been there hasn't been one for a couple of days. So no. <laughs> All I have to say is come friendly bombs. Yes. <laughs> All right, that's us for this week. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, follow us at WDTATW underscore podcast, follow me at BM Bergamo, follow Hugh at Tennis Smashing, and we will see you soon. Bye. Bye.